All right, so as the great Jerry Reed once said, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Eastbound, don't try a bandit run. All right, so we got a long way to go. We're going 40 years in 40-ish minutes. All right, that's a long way to go. So uh, reminder, we have an app with notes. You can follow along, fill in blanks. That would be awesome. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, because we are blazing so fast, we're going to be picking up a lot of little principles as we go. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us all today to absorb those principles to understand what God has for us, and then hopefully to really live this stuff out as we're meant to do that. So if you go ahead and pray with me right now, that would be awesome. Jesus, I thank you for lessons that are meant to be learned from the lives of people who were sometimes successful, sometimes not, uh, and yet in your mercy, even in your justness, uh, you correct and you guide and you reclaim and you do new things. And that's so much the story of this particular book. And so we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your passion. We ask for your forgiveness for our failures. And we ask for you to reclaim us in such ways that those things become restorative. And therefore, man, we can, we can be an aid to others in that process. And so Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We need you. And we look to you this day in your good name. Amen. So yes, as a church, we are doing five weeks in the book of Numbers. And if you go back to week number one, we learned why Numbers is called Numbers, right? There's all these genealogies and there's all this census data that's given. But at the core of that, what's happening is God is really putting together an army, right? So those numbers tally up an army that's designed to go and reclaim their ancestral home. And so in week one, the first 10 chapters of Numbers, man, the people are obeying God. Right? They're after it, they're slaying it, they're obeying it, they're doing it. And for that solid three weeks, they're putting together the team, they're assembling everything so that they're ready to roll. And then we went into week two, and they move out. And in three days' time, what happens? They begin to grumble, they begin to complain, they begin to whine, they begin to fret, all these kinds of things, because they want control, they want comfort, they want certainty. And so on week two, we said, hey, what the real problem here is, is that they were, they were testing God in the wilderness. And in the testing, man, God brings the smackdown at times. He does some things to course correct them. But I'm convinced, as I said last week, he's not doing that to be harsh with them. He's not doing that because he just loves to be judgmental, but rather he does it to be restorative. He doesn't want them to stay in their misery and their, their lack of flourishing. So he spanks them to course correct them. And so we left off last week with them kind of going into the next leg of the journey. And so chapter 12 kind of closed out by saying they left Hazaroth and then they camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now Paran is strategic, right? So we're thinking about this is an invasion army going back to take their promised homeland. And so this is about 50 miles to the south of the, the promised area, their ancestral home. Or if you swung up to the east, it's about a hundred mile trek. So based on that, if you really kind of understand it structurally, they're roughly 40 hours. If you split the difference, where they're at at this point is about 40 hours travel time to their home. That's where they're at. And that's a staging point to get them ready for a 40-day kind of investigation of the land. And that's how long all of this should be taking. But as we're going to see today, it ends up being an arduous and painful 40-year journey into craziness. And the reason this happens is because week three is all about how they are disobeying God. 
They go from testing to full-on disobeying. So they're right on the doorstep of something new. They're right at the precipice of greatness. They're right where God is gonna give them everything that has been promised. But in this section, we're gonna see three different movements of disobedience, right? Because again, like I've told you, numbers loves patterns. Last week, we saw a pattern of three. This week, we will see a pattern of three. And all of it is a pattern of disobedience where it gets closer and closer to the core of the people. And so we're gonna be ripping this morning, reading a lot, I'm going to start with this first offense that we see get underway. And this is the disobedience of defiance, also known as spies, lies, cries, and a generation dies. Yes, I'm a poet. All right, starting in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land that I'm giving to the Israelites. And you always want to remember, God's like, I'm giving this to you. I'm on the move. I'm doing this thing. This is by my hand, right? So send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp into the wilderness, from the camp of the wilderness of Paran, right? So 40 hours up north, they go up to that place. And then they explored the land for 40 days. And then they returned to Moses and the whole community of Israel. And this was the report. We entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed bountiful. It's a country with milk and honey that is flowing. But the people that are living there are powerful, and the towns are large and fortified, and we even saw the descendants of Anak. Now, we're going to get into that in a minute, but basically what this is is like a SWOT analysis, right? They're kind of going, here's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. They're giving this analysis. And it's understandable in most conditions that that's exactly what you would do. If you're going to do this big deal thing, you want to kind of look at pros and cons. But we want to keep the context in mind. And the context is that God has said, I'm giving this to you. And so in other words, while they're debating this, it's sort of forgetting that the person of God is in their midst. The power of God is on display. The promise of God has been certain. I am doing this for you. All of that is the context. And it seems that some of the people are already beginning to forget that. But then there's a couple of guys that were amongst the spies, two of them, that see things different. Ten are going one direction, two are going another. Caleb and Joshua are the two that sees the world a little bit differently. And so Caleb tries to speak up and quiet the people there in front of Moses. And so he says to everybody, hey man, let's go at once. Let's take the land. We can certainly conquer it. But then the other men who had explored the land, they disagreed with him. And they said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. Now, what I dig about Caleb is he's motivated by remembrance and by promise, right? So he's thinking back. He's like, okay, a couple of years ago, we were enslaved. It was rotten. God shows up. God delivers. He brings plagues. He opens a sea. He takes us on dry ground. He gives us the law. All the stuff is going on. God has shown up historically, so I know God is going to show up in the future. He has faith for what's ahead because he has the facts of what has been behind which I think is sometimes really important for us to remember too, right? It's really hard sometimes for us to take the next step in faith so often because we forget what God has done for us up to this point. That's the struggle, but that's not Caleb. He's like, man, I'm ready to roll. Let's make this happen, right? God's gonna deliver the goods. But Caleb and his friend Joshua, who isn't really speaking up here, they're outnumbered because there's those other 10 guys and they have different thoughts. But they're kind of concerned that these two guys are so excited about it, right? Because here's what you know. If you've ever been around a really passionate person, 
even if you're not passionate about a thing, they can pull you in. You can be like, yeah, this guy's really excited. Let's go where this guy's going. I don't even know what it is, but let's do it, right? And so the 10 know that the two are being compelling, and they need to sink that ship really quick. And so in verse 32, it says, they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. They said, the land that we traveled to and explored, oh man, it's going to devour anyone who goes there. All the people we saw there were huge. We even saw giants, the word Nephilim. We'll get into that in a second. They are the descendants of Anak. And then next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too, which I think is funny, right? They're like, uh, we looked weak, and they said, yeah, you do look pathetic. We agree. So what this is really all about here is basically fake news. It's propaganda, the 10 are like, man, we think we're going to get our butt kicked because we're not really focusing on God. We're focusing on the problem. We're focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on our resources and reserves more than God's provision and power. And so from that, they're telling everybody, listen, that land, you think it's a place where you can go and have replenishment. No, it's going to devour you. And more than that, there are these Nephilim there. In their mythology as Israelites, they believed that the Nephilim were part human and part divine, like Hercules, part demonic and part just human being. And they're like, those people will wipe us out. That's why they agree. We're pathetic. We're like bugs. They'll smash us. And so they're very, very compelling at this point because they're trying to push the people in a direction to say, we're not going. And it seems that it works. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the whole community began to weep out loud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. Oh, if we had only died in Egypt. Oh, even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to slavery? Right? So easy to be like, oh, the old life is better than the potential new life. And of course, it's all about the children to boot, right? And our kids, you know? Which I get it. But they've forgotten. They've forgotten the fact that, man, God has promised the land. They've forgotten that God has provided with water and food throughout the journey. And they've forgotten that God has been their protection throughout everything, especially against their enemies. And it's funny, because you think about this, right? God has literally subdued Pharaoh, who thought himself to be a god. God has decimated the largest standing military in the region, and up to that point, human history for them. On top of that, the ten plagues of Egypt were designed to basically go after ten strategic gods over Egypt. Each plague kind of assaults one of the gods of Egypt in the mythology of the Egyptians. And so God can do all of that, but now here's this rinky-dink little area of land with some big cities, some serious foes, but nothing like Egypt, and yet they're all freaking out about it? Like, he could do it back there, but he can't do it now up here? It's just so problematic, right? But here they're doing more than just complaining. They're now conspiring. They're not just talking, but they're actually pe preparing to, to take some action because then it says they plotted among themselves Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. See if we can go back to Pharaoh and smooth things over. Get our own homes back, get that good fish we want, get the leeks and the onions and the garlic and all the stuff that we love. Let's go back and do that. So last week they said, hey, God isn't giving us the comfort we want. He isn't giving us the certainty we want. He isn't giving us the sense of, of control that we want. But now what do they want? 
They want safety, security, and stability. Even if it means going against God, they want to try to secure that for themselves now. And yet I kind of look at this and I get it. Because I think about my own life, like when it comes to my Christian walk with Jesus, there's things that Jesus asks of me that do not ensure security and safety and, and ease by a long mile, right? He's like, I want you to die to yourself. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to endure persecution with joy. I want you to go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. All these things that where I'm like, hey, that's going to remove from me my sense of security and safety and provision and comfort and care and all this. And he's like, right, I know. You have to trust me in this. Well, that's where they're at, and they don't want to do it. Just as much as sometimes I'm in that space, and I don't want to do it. But if we take this, and we just kind of distill it down principally a little bit, what we see that they're doing at the core is they are rejecting Moses, that's clear. But in rejecting Moses, they're actually rejecting God, because God set up Moses in this space. And so their sin is pretty deep. More than that, we want to remember the structure of the camp is in this big cross shape, with all the tribes surrounding the center, and now all the tribes are in revolt. Everybody, it's not just the fringes of the camp, it's not just some of the people that are stirring up strife. No, all the tribes are all in on this problem. They're all like, we don't wanna go, we want a different leader, we wanna go back. So it says, Moses and Aaron, they fell down before the whole community of Israel. Which I look at this and I go, in part, I think they're falling down on their face to pray, and in part, I think they're falling down to duck, right? Like, they just challenge God, and they're like, okay, here it comes. He's going to swat them all. It's going to happen, right? But then two of the men who'd explored the land, Joshua and Caleb, they tore their clothing. And they said to the people of Israel, the land we have traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. It's not going to decimate us. You guys are crazy, right? No, and if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land, right? So they're like, come on, fellas, we could do this. We got this. We've got God. He's on our side. If we're not dumb, it's gonna be fine. If we don't revolt and rebel and just decide to go into madness, he's gonna deliver. So does it sink in with the people? No, it says the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Like, these guys are stupid, man. This is like the hang Mike Pence moment of the Bible, you know? It's like, get these guys. Wipe them out. They're against us. They're not for us, right? So then, the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me even after all the miraculous signs that I have done among them? I will disown them and destroy them with a plague, and then I will make you a nation that is greater and mightier than they are. God's like, okay, let's just go ahead and just reboot the system, right? Hard reset all the way around. And I get it. And it's interesting that God says, let's just, just I'm just going to bring a plague. See, that word is strategic because what did God do in Egypt? Plagues for the enemies of God's people. And now God's like, these are my people, and they are earning plague, just like Egypt. That, that's pretty substantial, but then Moses, he objected, which I'm like, gutsy. He says, what will the Egyptians think when they hear about it, right? If you slaughter all of these people with a single blow, the nations that heard of your fame will say the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he swore to give them. He killed them in the wilderness instead. He says, please, Lord, prove that your power is as great as you have claimed. For you have said the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But of course, we know that you don't simply excuse the guilty. 
in keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of this people just as you have forgiven them since they left Egypt. See, what Moses here is doing is his job. Right? So you have God that is holy and sort of removed in some ways from the people, which is why the Levites guard the center of the camp and everything else. But Moses is meant to be this ambassador between God and the people, and therefore he's like, God, wait, you've made these promises, you've said these things, you've made these decrees, and, and I'm reminding you of this. And it seems strange to us, but, but God knows what's really going on. He knows the deeper thing. And in some ways, this is even a test for Moses. Are you going to stay in the pocket and do your job? Even before me. What I think is interesting about this too from just kind of a human emotional perspective is that all these people are complaining about Moses and Moses is standing in the gap for the people still, right? Like, like think about if it was you and you had tens of thousands of people saying, you suck. And then you go, okay, but I'm still gonna shield them from the justice of God. Even though they hate me, I love them, I care for them. That's leadership, that's love, that's sacrifice. That's this man. And so Moses appeals to God's reputation. What are the Egyptians gonna say? What are the other nations gonna say? And he appeals to God's promise. You said that you would give these people the land. And then of course he appeals to God's character. You're loving, you're forgiving. Yes, you're just. Yes, you can't just let this slide by. But at the same time, you can forgive. And so I love it because he's just believing the words that God has shared and he's reiterating that to God and this is a test for him so that he shows God, I believe your truth no matter what's going on. And so the Lord said, you're right, Moses. I will pardon them as you have requested, but assuredly as I live, as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs that I have performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They will never see the land that I swore to give their ancestors. You will all drop dead in the wilderness because you have complained against me. Every one of you who is 20 years or older, who was included in the registration, you're going to die. All right? You will not enter and occupy the land that I swore to give you. And your children that you were worried about ta being taken as plunder, well, they're going to be like shepherds wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in that way, you will pay for your faithlessness until the last of you dies in the wilderness. Because your men explored the land for 40 days, you must wander in the wilderness for 40 years. A year for every day, suffering the consequence for your sin. So it is severe. This is why it's now 40 years instead of 40 hours north. Right? This is why this whole book of Numbers exists. And, and I look at that and I go, in one sense, you go, man, that, that's really brutal and really rough. But in another sense, it's not like God's completely abandoning the nation and just rebooting and starting with a whole new group of people uh, from the get-go. No, he's like, no, listen, I'm going to sideline this generation, but I'm still going to work in the next generation. And I think God still kind of does that in some ways today. I really do. I think God will never abandon his church. He never abandons his people. But I think sometimes he says, you know what? You all are kind of off track. We're just going to kind of remove some blessing for a while and, and let you all kind of wallow in your own crazy. And then the next generation, we're going to do something with again. And so God's not giving up on the plan. He's not giving up on the people. But this generation, they're going to be out, right? And so this 40-hour walk becomes a 40-year slog to thin out the herd of hard-heartedness. And yet, in the midst of that, the promise is still the plan. And so God gives some solutions, right? He's like, man, 
You guys have brought some judgment, you brought some guilt, but I also want to extend grace, I want to show restoration, and I want to give you a sense of how you maintain faithfulness. And so, in Numbers 15, it says, Then the Lord told Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. And you see the series of things that come into play. He gives this ritual sacrifice as worship. And at the core of that, that's really about healthy input. Like, do these things in a worshipful way. It's going to strengthen and fortify you internally and spiritually. And then he gives them restoration sacrifices for mistakes and sins. And this is all about kind of healthy repentance. He also has removal sacrifices for brazen rebellion. This is boundaries, where he's like, some people are just so brazen, you got to remove them from the camp. you got to remove them from the structure. And then he gives some examples, right? One is a guy I just called Moish, because why not? It's a good Jewish name. And Moish decides he's going to go gather wood on the Sabbath, and God's like, okay, this guy's brazen. He's, you got to make this guy an example, and so he dies. And the guy's like, you got to remember to obey me. you got to remember these rules and these laws. So he has people put on tassels on their, their robes, like how we wear a wedding ring to remember our vow and our oath. They wore tassels to remember God's laws and rules. And so God's like, you can't forget. you got to remember. When you walk with me, you live. When you rebel against me, you die. I'm flourishing. That's decay. And so that gets grounded in this section, right? He says, remember and learn. So from this, do you think they remember and they learn? No. Second offense, the disobedience of dissent. When the defenders become the danger. It says, in chapter 16, verse 1, one day Korah, who is a descendant of Levi, he conspires with some buddies, including a dude named On, which I'm like, put your brother's name off? I don't know. So anyway, they're all there, and they're from this kind of underlying group of Reuben and everything else, and then they incited this rebellion against Moses, along with another 250 leaders of the community, all prominent members of the assembly, right? They unite, they're like, Moses is terrible, and so Moses steps in and says, listen, you Levites. So, so remember, what do Levites do? They reside at the center of the camp, and they ensure purity for the camp. That's their job. And while all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. But apparently all the Levites think, hey, we all get to do the priestly job. We all get to be a part of the, the tribe in that sense. We all get to do these things. And so what you have then with the structure of the camp is in the previous issue, it was the tribes that were rebelling. Now the sin's getting closer to the center, and it's those who are supposed to bring purity. They are ensuring decay. So now that strata is beginning to lose sight of what God wants them to do. And for them, the issue is, hey, this should be a democracy. And God's like, that's cute, because this is a theocracy. Y'all don't get to decide. Now, where these guys are right is that they're all God's people. But just because they're all God's people, they can't all decide that they get to do all the things that they want to do. And that's what's going on. So there's a showdown. And so Moses says... This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things that I have done, for I have not done, done them on my own. And so the camp is watching what's going to happen between Moses and the Levites, right? He says, if these men die a natural death, or if nothing unusual happens to them, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord does something entirely new, and you, that from that you'll know that these men have shown contempt for the Lord, not just for Moses, but for the Lord. So if they just die of old age, you'll know I'm an idiot. And if something else happens, you'll know that I'm God's man. He had hardly finished these words when the ground suddenly split open beneath them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the men along with their households and all of their followers who were standing with them and everything that they owned. 
they went down alive into the grave along with all of their belongings and the earth closed over the top of them and they all vanished from among the people of Israel. Dang, dude. This is brutal, man. And you look at it and you're like, well, that doesn't seem very fair. It's like, all right, so Korah and some buddies go crazy and now there are whole families and all their stuff and their servants and everybody gets swallowed alive. What's the deal there? Well, it's a pretty sober reminder that the sins of one can affect many others, right? I mean, I think about that practically even in families. You know, when you have a child that goes sideways, it doesn't just affect the child. It affects the parents. It affects the siblings. It affects the family. If a spouse goes sideways, it doesn't just affect the, the person that goes sideways. It affects everybody in proximity to that. And here you have spiritual religious leaders that are going sideways. And I know in our modern climate, when pastors morally fail and blow out, when religious leaders do something stupid and try to cover it up and it comes out, it hurts so many people. These lessons are there for our learning. Like, yes, it isn't just about me. My dumb acts can hurt many, many people around me. And so that's what is going on here. So from that, it probably scares the rest of the people straight, right? Nope. The very next morning, the next morning, the whole community of Israel began murmuring again about Moses and Aaron saying, you've killed the Lord's people. Like Moses is like some kind of earthbender, right? Like I just, yeah, I opened up the ground, sucked him in. It was so cool. No, man, they're not even giving God credit. They're just blaming Moses. So the Lord said to Moses, get away from all of these people because I'm going to wipe them out. He's like, dude, flee, back off, and everything else. But Moses does his job. And he says, Aaron, quick, take an incense burner and place the coals in it and, and put it on the altar and then lay incense on that and then carry it out among the people to purify them and make them right with the Lord because the Lord's anger is blazing against them. The plague has already gotten underway. And so Aaron did exactly as Moses had told him and he ran out among the people and the plague had already begun. It was striking down individuals, but Aaron burned the incense and purified the people. Again, I go, the people reject Moses and Moses in his love contends for the people. And there is another lesson kind of embedded into this, which is you go, wait, so these people in the midst of their rebellion are still being purified even though their heart is rebellion. And I go, yeah, this is kind of also what Jesus does for us, right? Even in the midst of our rebellion, he seeks to purify us. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he can't deny himself. And so this is an echo of what the cross even does for us, right? We every day struggle, we're weak, we're foolish, and yet his grace is sufficient. And so Aaron kind of goes in, according to Moses, deals with the judgment. But the judgment leads to mercy again. And with this, we see this reestablishment of reminder and ritual for the people of God, another sense of solution. And so from chapter 17 to chapter 19, we see these three different images that are really coupled into two ideas. And so one is this staff, the staff of flourishing from God, which is the staff of Aaron. There's a bunch of other staffs that are there. They put them all before the ark. But Aaron's buds... Right? It blooms as a dead stick into something alive. And it just reminds that God brings life from death. God has that power. And then also in this, you see these water purification rituals and this sacrifice of cleansing with a red heifer. Again, weird kind of details where they take a red heifer or a blood heifer and they kill it and they burn it completely and they take the ash and put it in the water and it acts as a way of purification for the camp when they contact dead things. So what do you have? 
People have just died. Now they're going to have to touch dead bodies, carry them out of the camp. They'll be impure, and God creates a means for them to become pure again. It becomes kind of like a, a visual learning tool that God is the source of your purity. God is the source of your cleansing. God is the source of your living. All of that is kind of there in those chapters. It's just a life lesson. And so God's like, you reject me, it's decay. You follow me, it's life. And God does this with a clear intention. He says, Moses, we do this so that finally it'll put an end to the people's murmuring and complaining against you. That's why he puts this together. Does it work? No. All right. Leads to the third and final offense. But this one has results that are a little bit unexpected. This has to do with the disobedience of dissatisfaction. And this is when the leaders lead recklessly. So, let's reboot the complaining. Gripe session number three. In the first month of the year, which, by the way, is the last year. So, this morning started off, we were roughly about 18 months, two years in. Now, we're in year 39 plus. Congratulations, Back to the Future. You've traveled a long way in a short time. So, the first month of the year, the last year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin, and there was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. The people blamed Moses and said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Yes, under plague, swallowed by earth, by fire, you name it, they pick it, all right. Oh, I've been great. He goes, why have you brought the whole congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness to die? And so basically, Moses has been an Uber driver for 40 years, and he's got a one-star Yelp review after all of it. Like, they just, they hate this dude. They're constantly at him, right? And after 40 years, they're still grumbling, except this is old people grumbling. Like, young people grumbling, like, this is a drag. Old people grumbling is they just don't stop every day. I don't like this. I don't like this. And so it's kind of old people grumbling. And they're grumbling, and I know, because I'm old people. I'm a grandparent. That's how I grumble, right? So year one... And year 40 have a link. And the link is this idea of, why did you make us leave Egypt so that we would die of thirst? Right? That's the link. So in year one, in Exodus chapter 17, that's where they're at. They're like, okay, we're out here in the desert. We're going to die. Right? And now in year 40, it's the same thing. Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place, this land that has no grain or figs or grapes or pomegranates and no water to drink? I'm like, really? Like, water is like a necessity. A pomegranate is like a luxury, you know? But they're griping about both. And realistically, they probably have some access to water, but it's just not comfortable enough. It's not certain enough. It's not strategic enough for them. And so they're griping. And so it's like, okay. How do you step in and deal with the ingrates? Well, that's what Moses is going to do. So Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went into the entrance of the tabernacle where once again they fell down on the ground to their face because that's what they've been doing all the time. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord said to Moses, and this is what's so surprising, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community and as the people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. So God doesn't say, these dumb people. He's like, all right, just go out, do this, give them water, right? And so Moses goes from the people of God into the God of the people, and then comes back out from the God of the people back to the people of God, and he has these instructions about the rock. And I want you to notice, it is the rock, not a rock. It is like the Ohio State, it's the <laughs> rock, all right? It's important. 
In fact, we, we, we've seen this before, right? So back in Exodus 17, there was the rock. And now in Numbers 20, there's the rock. In fact, we'll compare them. Back 40 years before, roughly, he was told, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai and then strike the rock and water will come gush, gushing from it. That's different, though, than this one where he says, I want you to go out and speak to the rock and from that water will pour out for the people. See, what you have here in part is bookends. The rock is a bookend year one, year 40. That, that's important to know, and that's the first thing. The second thing is no matter how you slice it, this rock is the source of life for the people, right? Because water is life in the desert. The difference between the two events is on the first one, he says, strike it. On the second one, he says, speak it. But then there's another thing that I want to kind of explore for just a second, and I know I'm going to want to get into this more than I, I, I can today. Maybe next week we'll get into it a little bit more. But the essence of the rock, like I, I think sometimes we get these ideas in our mind of maybe what this structure is really like. And so here's a picture, for example. Uh, this is in Horeb. This is actually in Saudi Arabia, and they call this the split rock of Horeb. And all like great, I don't know, like, you know, people that are wanting to have you come and take pictures and pay money love this idea. Like, this is the place where Moses struck the rock back in Exodus chapter 17. And so people go there like, oh, this is the place. Probably not the place, right? It's just like, hey, it's a great place for a photo op. It looks like something Moses would have done, so maybe this is what it is. But realistically, what we tend to think about these events is like it was this big kind of like fixed formation some large cliff or structure, and from that, Moses hits the rock, and it opens up some spring and water flows, and it's that simple. So it's kind of a fixed orientation. In reality, though, the history and tradition of the Israelite people, they think about this rock, and they think it's just kind of a small little stone. Doesn't seem very dramatic, does it? But, but they didn't picture it as a big fixed formation. They pictured it as something that traveled with the people for the entire 40 years. Started with them and ends with them. Same rock, traveling with them. Now you're like, I don't know. That's okay, Paul does. Here's what he says. He says, remember uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, don't forget, dear brothers and sisters, about the ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. I think that's so cool, man. Right? Because here's what you have. It's like rock and roll was born, or at least a rolling rock, whatever it was, was born in the book of Numbers. This rock goes with them. This rock is nourishing them. And somehow, in a way that I don't fully understand, this rock is Christ. And so this is the portable water cooler with the children of Israel the entire time to take care of them, to nourish them. So from year one to year 40, if we think about the way they march, uh, the rock is with them that gives them water as God leads them and gives them life and guidance and direction. And somehow, in ways that I don't understand, this is associated with Christ, that Jesus was with them. And yet, when you kind of unpack the book of Numbers in general, you see these connections, that Jesus is the rock, that Jesus is the living water, that Jesus is the bread of life. That's all borrowed from Numbers. And we're going to see next week where those, context, those contexts and connections, uh, they run even deeper but it just reminds us that Jesus isn't new to the story when he shows up in Matthew chapter 1. 
No, he's always been a part of the story. He's always been the God of the people. And the, these people just don't understand that he is their God. And so the rock here isn't just some miraculous rock that's just pulled into service with no particular bearing. No, this is a representation of God as well among the people. And that's what kind of makes this next event make a little bit more sense. The, the rock isn't just a rock, but the rock is connected to the presence and person of God somehow. Here's what it says next. Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it had been kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come out and gather to the rock. But then goes off the rails. He says, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water from this rock? And then Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice with his staff and water gushed out so the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. So in God's mercy and grace, they're grumbling, whining, complaining, and he still gives them water from the rock. But the problem is Moses does it wrong. What did God say? He said, go out and say to the rock this. Instead, Moses goes out and says to the people, you all are awful. I'm sick and tired of you. And then he doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock twice. There's a sense of frustration, anger. It's like for 40 years, he's been solid. He's been great. He's been on it. He's contended for the people. He stood in the gap. He's been selfless and sacrificial. And then finally today at the very end, he's like, I'm just going nuts, man. I'm fed up. I'm frustrated. I'm done. Bam, bam. You guys are awful. He snaps, right? And so if we think about the structure... The sin has gone from the tribes to the leaders or to the Levites all the way to the leader, right? Sin, and this is why God tells this in three movements. It's just the reminder, if sin left unchecked, we'll get the best of us. If sin left unchecked, will wipe us out all the way to the core. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land that I'm giving them. Crazy enough, this is the full circle, right? What did God tell the first group when they didn't want to go into the promised land and they just wanted to chill? He says, you didn't trust me enough that I would take you into the land and have you succeed. And now he's having to say to the leader, you did not trust me enough to just speak to the rock. Let me deal with the people. You don't have to take things into your own hands and you're dealing with the people. I'll do that. You do your job. He doesn't do his job. And so an entire generation, all the way to Aaron and Moses, will not inherit the land. 40 years of faithfulness stopped because of this foolish decision. Now, does this mean that God isn't on Team Moses? No, he's very much on Team Moses. This is a consequence thing. It's not a relationship thing. Right? In fact, even later in the life of Jesus, you see he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and it's Moses that comes and brings him encouragement. So, so it, it's not like, oh, Moses is now a bad guy. It's just we all have to remember, you know what? Starting's easy, finishing is hard. And many people start good, but they don't finish well. Many of the stories of the Bible, that's exactly what it is. David starts great, doesn't finish well. Solomon starts great, doesn't finish well. Moses starts great, doesn't finish well. If there's a lesson to be learned, is don't stop contending. Always finish well. So this whole generation will die in the wilderness. And yet, God is about mercy. 
And while there's judgment, there will be mercy that will be like fertilizer for the next generation to flourish. And we'll see that next week as we continue into the wilderness. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you even for your, your spankings in our lives. I mean, I think about that in the book of Hebrews where it says, man, you spank us because you love us. You don't want us to wallow in our folly. There are consequences for our decisions that we must face, and yet there's restoration that you offer, right? The, 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 the garbage and, and just the, the pain of life can still act as a fertilizer for our future. And that's what we get to see as we continue through this book. I think about those who may be watching or in this room today where you're like, man, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus, you know, and, and I've been kind of in that place of consequence, pain, I feel the, the pressure of God to course correct me. If that's you and you want that new life with Christ, you want that new sense of relationship to him, that is a prayer way where you're like, God, I'm, I've been doing my own thing, going my own way, plotting my own course, I've been just like these people in the desert, and I want it different, I want life with you, I, I realize that you are flourishing, you are, you are love and life itself. If you want that, that is a prayer way for you where you just simply say, I have been sinful. I need you. Come into my life. Make me new. I want to follow you. You pray that in your words, your way. He hears you. He brings you into the family. And we want to know that you made that decision. We have a tile in our app uh, that you can type on there and just say, hey, I decided to follow Christ today. We would love to know you did that. And then for the rest of us, man, I know we've all been like Israel. We've all been out there in the wilderness. We've all grumbled, complained, done things, and there's consequences we're dealing with. But I want to remind us there is mercy and forgiveness and cleansing and renewal as we ask. And so maybe there's just things in your world you've got to ask today. God, forgive me, work in me, restore me. He does. He loves it. He is loving and kind and rich in mercy and loves to forgive. And that is a part of his character for us. Jesus, again, I just thank you for the grace you show us for the strength that you offer us and for the lessons that you teach us. We praise you this day in your good name.